This is Ader Nabetter. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? It is the end of 2019. And Sajid and I thought we would do an Ader Nabetter 2019 year in review. Retrospective. Uh, ex post facto look. No, no more legal jargon. A, a state of the Ader nation. We look back at what we were able to think through, talk about in 2019, and maybe uh, share uh, some aspirations for 2020, not just uh, with respect to the podcast, but with respect to our practices and where we want to go in terms of helping people and using these legal tools to provide assistance. So Sajid, tell us what, I mean, what do you think about this conversation? What are we trying to yeah, get? Yeah, you know, I we've been a little bit on a, on a hiatus just because of our respective schedules, but we're always thinking about the podcast and thinking about what it's been for us and then what it can be and what it will be. And especially coming to the end of this year, I thought this would be a good chance for us to sit down. You and I actually haven't caught up in a while. So I wanted to catch up with you personally and talk to you about what's been going on and, and what's uh, what's ahead for you. And so I figured we might as well put some mics in front of us and do this kind of retrospective and reflect back on what a year it's been for us as public defenders and also for us as the Aider Nation and the Aider and a Better podcast. And then think about what's ahead for us in 2020, what our listeners want to see from us in 2020, and then also what frontiers of criminal justice reform uh, we want to take on and, and see um, as the kind of next steps ahead. So that's kind of what I had in mind. Yeah. So let's do it. Yeah. So in 2019, we had, I think we put out seven episodes of Aider and a Better. They were all memorable and unique they're all bangers and <laughs> they're all bangers and we've gotten great response on each of them we had the privilege of interviewing and talking to chase abudin while he was running for san francisco da uh, he's now been elected as a san francisco district attorney in a groundbreaking revolutionary campaign and outcome we also interviewed manohar raju on a live podcast over at uc hastings he's the uh, new san francisco public defender we interviewed mark bookman who is a prominent philadelphia based capital appellate lawyer uh, handling high level litigation we um also talked to our colleague and friend Perla Garcia about her immigration story from Nicaragua coming to the United States and ultimately becoming a public defender. We also had a really fun conversation to start the year with our friends and colleagues, Chris Givens and Kristen Carter, talking about the bad defense bracket, uh, the IAC bracket, as we called it. And so it was a really fulfilling year here on the podcast. I wanted to ask you, Avi, is there a particular episode uh, from that list of episodes that stands out or a particular guest that you felt uh, kind of gratified or fulfilled to talk to? I don't think it's recency bias uh, because you asked, me, you asked me the question ahead so I could think about it and kind of untangle, you know, whether it was recency bias. But the conversation with Perla was very meaningful to me. I've, I've known Perla for 10 years and I, you know, and, and have been a friend, you know, we've been friends for 10 years and we've had very in-depth and real conversations over that time, you know, about our lives and about, you know, kids and about the work and all that stuff. And there was something about this forum of uh, a podcast, you know, there's some kind of formality sitting around a table and having to like think about questions and having to answer those questions. That was very special to me. I've, I've told you, I've told other folks that the whole project, you know, as we are in, you know, year three or finishing year three, finishing year three, which it does involve a lot of work in terms of putting it all together, figuring out what topics to address, how to make it sound the way it sounds or whatever. 
the whole project, you know, and all the effort, you know, is worth it without question just for that one conversation. Yeah. And, you know, that's just, you know, kind of an understatement in terms of all the other stuff that's been cool and interesting. But getting to hear from Perla and to know Perla through that conversation. Yeah, there's a depth of intimacy and connection that I now have with her. Uh, I just saw her in court this morning, actually. Now I I always had respect for her. I admired her as a colleague, as a public defender and and as a friend. But there's a new layer uh, or newly discovered depth and um to that connection and an appreciation for who she is and what she's uh what she and her family accomplished and what she provides to the people that we represent given her life experiences it was such a beautiful conversation and beautiful story it reminds me you know if we go back more years like our our friend jeremy jones you know when jeremy came on and we got to spend time with him that it was not a like uh here's how we should make our philosophy of defense activated right it was let's sit down and have one of those conversations which is you know the pod creates a space for that is really fucking cool yeah and and you mentioned jeremy because now i also see jeremy in the courthouse he's a uniform sergeant and as we've discussed on that that podcast oftentimes public defenders and police officers are pitted against each other and rightfully so uh, we oftentimes are don't have aligning interests with respect to the people we represent but with jeremy now that we had that conversation with him and we're able to hear his story, share his story. Um, When I see him in the courthouse, he comes up to me, gives me a big handshake and a hug. And it's it's really meaningful. Uh, It's really meaningful. So when you talk about what this project has been all about, and it's been evolving, you know, from what we thought it would look like or could be. A Golden State Warriors uh, (laughs) uh, recap podcast. To what it is now, where we've had this real amazing platform to have these really beautiful, meaningful conversations and to and to make these in-depth connections with people um, that we otherwise would know but didn't truly know. And now it's almost like, again, this intimacy that we've been able to have through these conversations that we also are able to share with whoever else is listening. Yeah. Um, for me, my, uh, my favorite two episodes are a tie. Um, one was the first one we did this year with, with Kristen and Chris. It, I listened to that episode recently, the IAC bracket or the bad defense bracket episode, and it just makes me laugh. It makes me smile. This work is hard. It's really difficult uh, to do the work that we do and to be in our courthouses and to be at the jail, to be front and center to so much human turmoil. So that episode just provides uh, kind of a salve, uh, a little escape. It just made me laugh from my belly uh, hearing Kristen. She is just so talented and so funny. And so for her to like go to bat for, uh, or to go to bat against particular defense counsel that we were talking about or to stand up for a particular defense counsel is just so incredible. And then Chris chiming in with his kind of sarcastic witty tones and i think on the episode i was laughing a lot like you kept my laughing in and i appreciate that you did um so that just it was a really special funny conversation and so then what what i want to mention about Kristen, and this is not to toot my or our horn but after that episode i had the pleasure of co-counseling a a double homicide trial with Kristen in our courthouse I'm not going to talk about the case because it's still an ongoing case but um, i was with her for five months as a as co-counsel and 
it was such an incredible experience. Um, she is so talented, so smart, so detail-oriented, uh, so charismatic, and she really pushed my boundaries as a lawyer to make me more courageous, uh, more bold, uh, make me a better litigator, kind of get me out of my comfort zone because of how brazen and bold and confident and prepared she is. So it's just special that I had, we had the podcast with her and then to be able to try a case with her. It's like this been this really evolving friendship and, and connection that I've, I've developed with her that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Um, the second episode that stands out to me is the one we did with Man- Manohar or Mano Raju at Hastings. We talked about it on the podcast itself. It was, as I think back about it now, it was just this beautiful alignment, epic alignment of so many parts of my identity and your identity, I'm sure. It was at Hastings, my alma mater. It was with Mano, who was someone that was a men- is a mentor to me and I looked up to as I was moving up the ranks in this in this field and trying to find my footing in various public defenders' offices. It was co-hosted or sponsored by the South Asian Bar Association and the South Asian Law Students Association at Hastings. And so this ability to and this forum to sit with someone like Mano and you and be hosted by the South Asian Bar Association and our friend Yamini Rao, who put it all together, and to do it at Hastings in an open space and to talk openly and vulnerably about our experiences as South Asian people and then as South Asian lawyers and then as South Asian public defenders and then as just public defenders. Um, so it was like this beautiful synergy, amazing synergy that I'm smiling right now as I talk about it because I just haven't felt that alignment before in the work that we do. I feel like sometimes there's a bit of a scenario where we're kind of fragmented or frayed in terms of our identities. We're public defenders here, but, and then we're South Asian or Indian at home and we're, I'm Muslim at my mosque. And then, but on that podcast, like it, it all came together in one beautiful cluster and to be able to talk about the things that we deal with and grapple with and the motivations that we have was really special. We're going to kind of bounce around, I think, in this conversation. But in terms of what we have kind of hopefully in store or in the mental queue uh, for 2020 in terms of eight or a better, the process that we have is that we just have Avi and I have a running outline of potential topics and guests that we discuss and review. So we have some some aspirations for 2020. Um, we talked about having a panel of the two of us and some other public defenders essentially talking to young defenders and, and think, giving them the advice that we wish we would have gotten when we were starting on the job or going through law school. I think we probably have to re-up our uh, public defender mixtape because some of the uh, music needs uh, to be, be updated. updated in light of... I know it's just different Tupac tracks for you, but <laughs> we have to... Uh, <laughs> we we still have to give the freshest uh yeah because uh, we recorded that episode in 2017 so it's time for i was like there's an artist you, you haven't heard of him his name is chance <laughs> the rapper and i uh <laughs> right yeah so that that, that could be that could definitely be another episode um i we've gotten some good feedback on that episode in terms of trial music um but yeah we gotta we gotta see what we're both putting in our ears in 2020 are there um are there ideas or things that you uh, are envisioning for 2020 or people that you'd like to talk to as you look forward when i think about the pod it's kind of a grab bag of things that are interesting you know they all kind of make sense when they're stuck together i'm very interested in following up the people who have come on previously we interviewed chaso when he was a candidate for district attorney of san francisco i'd love to uh, follow up with him to 
uh, talk about what it's like now, right? There's yeah. the mission of winning the election, and now there's delivering all the promises, which are there's going to be a lot of resistance uh, in terms of what he's trying to accomplish or what he stated he was going to be accomplishing in terms of the not filing gang charges. Mm -hmm. You know, what's that like? Uh, not seeking life sentences under the three strikes law, right? What's that like? So I'm, I'm very interested in that follow-up. There's some large issues about, you know, where we're heading, you know, what are the, what are the hopeful goals for our system? You know, uh, one is probation reform. And a big place where that's happening is in uh, Philadelphia. So, of course, I have a, you know, a fondness for Mark. You know, so it's a just checking Buckman, in with people Buckman, yeah, about yeah. What, what's happening in these different spaces. I'm interested, you know, as usual, in doing something that's kind of pop culture and criminal defense related. I don't know if we can bracket it, you know, but we could have some sort of some topic like that. And, and we've solicited folks previously, you know, we've put out word, you know, what are your ideas for questions? What are your ideas for shows? And so if you have any ideas for uh, next year for Aider and a Better, uh, shoot us an email at aiderandabetter at gmail.com or DM, DM us, us or, or add us on Twitter. We're Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely would love ideas from our listeners about, you know, like one of those fun kind of non-topical conversations that we could have. We did best trial music. We did best our top five uh, defense lawyers. We also did the IAC bracket before. And so um, some other uh, things like that would be cool. The other person I want to, um, we have a kind of a pending invite to talk to is Adnan Khan. He is a, he was one of the individuals that got released after California adopted SB 1437, amending the felony murder law. Um, he was released from prison immediately after that law passed and has been doing amazing work statewide and nationally about changing narratives around those in prison. He is uh, one of the co-founders of an organization called Restore Justice, and I know he's doing amazing work. He's in the Bay Area, and it's just ultimately an, an, an inevitability that we connect with him and bring him on the podcast to talk about his prison experience and then his uh, life on the outside and the work that he's been doing. But other guests, I'm definitely op we're open to suggestions to see what people what people have in mind. The other th guest that I'd like to see us have on is someone that I met on Twitter initially, and we can kind of dovetail into the conversation about kind of the year in review. Is someone that I met in person in September is Scott Eckinger, who's with the Brooklyn Defender Service. I met him at the Zealous Conference in Brooklyn. It was a conference uh, organized by the Brooklyn Defender Service, bringing public defenders from across the country to be trained on media and movement building. For those that don't know, Scott is a public defender there in Brooklyn, but he's also uh, known on Twitter as being a storyteller via Twitter and a criminal justice reform advocate on Twitter from a public defender perspective. And so he and his uh, colleagues there put on this uh, program at Zealous trying to train public defenders to do what we've been attempting to do, which is to take our voices that have been so strong and prominent in the courtroom and turn them outward facing into regular news media and into our Capitol buildings, city hall, county buildings to tell the stories of the people we represent and also to effectuate local, statewide, and national criminal justice reform and how we can best do that. And so I had the privilege of being there to learn some of those skills. We've tried to up our Twitter game based on some of the training that we got there. But I'd like to talk to Scott about 
uh, what he's doing, what, what what Zealous is all about, and then what the potential is for a platform like Eight or a Better to effectuate uh, broader change. There are all these spaces that exist that can be used to tell stories, that can be used to explain how the system is, is failing or succeeding, you know, depending on, I know there's a big debate about yeah. you know, what it's designed to do. I think that would be really interesting. Can I, I just one thing yeah. I, I would propose is, you know, the invitation is laid down for our, our uh, fellow defense podcast folks, always open invitation for crossovers. The community grows. It's, there's an OG in the Los Angeles public defender and she had a, like, it was like trial court confidential or <laughs> trial confidential. I used to listen to that. Oh, really? It was like one of the first podcasts I listened to where she was describing like what a NGI plea is. You know, it was like a, it was very, uh, very uh, substantive. Uh, and now there's all these other, you know, public defense pods that yeah, are the, another, another not another guilty, not guilty. Um, which is put on by the some some of our friends down at in the L.A. public defender's office. And then there is another public defender out of Florida named Hannah Ibanez. I actually was a guest on her podcast like a couple of years ago, and I, I'm not sure if it's still running. But, yeah, we're definitely looking for kind of to grow the network and uh, connect together and we want coalesce the, for the greater good. The full house step-by-step crossover <laughs> is always available. Did they do a crossover? Right. I, I, they used to do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, when Boy Meets World walks on to, you know. Corey meets somebody from a different from TV show. DJ. <laughs> Corey and DJ meet, yeah. So I, did not. I will be the Topanga to any, uh, you know, visit over at Bayside. <laughs> now you're crossing networks. Yeah, so that's that's exciting. What I also wanted to for us to talk about in terms of legal frontiers for criminal justice reform in 2020, 2018, 2019 have been pretty, in California at least, have been significant in terms of criminal justice reform. We had Ash Kara on in 2017, in the fall of 2017, to talk about those reforms that were happening then. We've had significant reforms since then. Um, in terms of, I just mentioned SB 1437 and, and reforming the felony murder rule. Uh, there's We've had frontiers of youthful offender parole. We've had the uh, frontier of ending the direct files of 14 and 15-year-old children. Avi, do you have thoughts about um, kind of what you'd like to see as the next uh, frontier of criminal justice reform as we launch into, into 2020? I want to see the uh, reforms that have been enacted recently withstand constitutional challenge. You know, from who? From <laughs> district attorney's offices. <laughs> right. So the, the voters, the people enacted all these reforms, and then the district attorney says, we want to charge 14-year-olds as adults. You know, we want to... Don't take that power from us. We want to get murder convictions and indeterminate sentences for people who are standing outside of a, of a store when it's robbed. That's the injustices the felony murder reforms designed to affect uh, are pretty obvious cases. Uh, so there's a fight happening here in California about the constitutionality of those reforms. And I think there's a question about seeing those reforms spread uh, across the country. I'm interested in restoration of voting rights to people who are currently incarcerated. I think that's an area where conversations are happening and we are situated to tell our client stories about the meaning that they place in voting. I think that there's reforms uh, I mentioned earlier about probation and how long we keep people under supervision. I would love uh, you know, to see reforms around 
the plea bargaining process, but I'm not so optimistic that there is a way uh, to do it separate from reducing sentencing options or you know eliminating prohibitions on judicial discretion. The, otherwise, the plea bargaining process will continue to uh, result in high incarceration for lots of people and the violation of constitutional rights. So, I'm you know there's there's some things percolating. There's the you know progressive prosecutor movement if it actually becomes a movement and how the pushback occurs and you know whether it can actually produce the results that we hope it can produce. So there's there's lots happening. There's policing reform. You know what are we uh, are we going to take any steps to address the the fact that a police officer can ask you if you're on probation or parole for no reason. In Oakland they were looking at a measure to require something like articulable suspicion before making even the request about hmm. probation or parole status. That could be, you know, if the parole officer says he, the person's driving this car with this plate, right. you know, right. as opposed to just asking people when you decide they look a certain way. Are you on probation or parole? Now we're having a different conversation right. from a traffic ticket. Right, right. There's a question about how the reform happens. You know, is it consent decrees have not been used during the Trump administration? Will consent decrees return where, you know, the Department of Justice sues police departments in order to get rid of racial profiling or other uh, abusive practices? Will there be something else? You know, is it done through a case or is it done through the legislature? I think it's probably done through organizing I think that's where uh, I'm feeling very uh, optimistic about the power of community members to drive change, you know, separate from, you know, court decisions, yeah. and court of appeal decisions. Uh, what about you? What do you think? I just realized as you were talking that it was in 2019 that Gavin Newsom took office as California governor. And one of his first actions as governor was to issue the moratorium on the death penalty. And so I'd love to see in 2020 our state take that next step forward in in ultimately outlawing and banning the the death penalty and and its use in our state and its use both in terms of actually ultimately enacting the death penalty uh, but then also in terms of using it as a plea bargaining tool uh, to coerce plea bargains from people that are accused of homicide crimes and then second relatedly to that is ending LWAP We've had a movement towards youthful offender parole, elderly parole, giving people the opportunity to apply for parole that have been languishing in our prisons for dozens and dozens of years. The next frontier of that is ending LWAP and giving everybody who is sentenced to a prison term the opportunity to earn their release and to prove themselves worthy of a release back into our community. And I think Silicon Valley Debug and their partners are going to be launching a 2020 end LWAP or drop LWAP campaign, including a trip up to Sacramento uh, coming up. And I'm hopeful that I'll be able to join that because that's personally a cause that I think is the next frontier of criminal justice reform that I like to see and like to be a part of. And then the other one that I've been thinking about is something that I've thought about for a long time. Um, and I'll talk to perhaps we can send it over to Ash is like a drug sales wobbler. And the reason I mentioned that is you know we have had significant change in terms of um, how we prosecute drug laws in this state. So personal possession of methamphetamine or other drugs is no longer um, prosecutable as a felony. Uh, however, low-level sellers of drugs who we know are often selling for because they are drug addicts, uh, as opposed to being drug traffickers or large cartel people, still can be prosecuted for felonies for uh, selling drugs to support their habit. 
And so what I'd like to see is a recognition of that by our state and our state legislatures that there are many, many individuals, including the people, many of the people that we've represented in our caseloads that are not um, prototypical or stereotypical drug dealers. They are, are drug addicts that need an intervention and services. And unfortunately, when someone's convicted of a felony sales crime, those types of services are often um, beyond their reach, uh, as opposed to someone who is convicted of uh, some lesser crime, and they are afforded more opportunity to avail themselves of drug addiction uh, programming, things like that. So I'd like to see that as another uh, frontier so that there's a uh, recognition of what the true roots are of particular behaviors like selling low selling low level amounts of drugs and and addressing them in a in a productive way. Yeah, one example of how dysfunctional our responses to drug distribution charges is if you look at the like 1980s, there were all these laws that were passed about minimums, about priors. Uh, California used to give you three additional years of punishment if you had a sales prior or transportation prior conviction. So if you possess methamphetamine and they are and you're convicted of possessing it with the intent to sell it, uh, then the next time you're accused where you're possessing maybe three grams and you have a scale in your pocket, you're facing as opposed to three-year maximum prison commitment, it would be a six-year maximum prison commitment. And so the legislature said, we're going to do away with those sales priors because they didn't ever go away by you know, the passage of time. They didn't have to be imposed, uh, but that was the thing that would juice uh, you know, convictions, right? You would say, okay, you're facing nine years, right, because you have two sales priors. Uh, so that was, the legislature got rid of that, and that was the right thing to do. One thing that they didn't get rid of was probation and eligibility terms. So there's all these old provisions that say you aren't able to get probation if you've been previously convicted of uh, possession of narcotics with the intent to distribute and you're convicted of a possession of narcotics with the intent to distribute. And what happens then is you become, uh, because of judicial decisions, that ineligibility makes you ineligible for split lengthy jail sentences. So if you have a drug sale uh, now and you're facing three years in the county jail in California and that three years uh, for other folks can be split up. I'm going to have you do one year incarcerated and two years of supervision with some investment from probation services and treatment requirements. If you have a sales prior, we can't do that because of this fiction that the person who's convicted of sales isn't uh, also engaged in substance use, right? Or is right. also, you know, it fits the model that this, this, the idea of who the sales convictions are geared towards is not connected in any way uh, to the reality. So if you buy the idea that treatment can help people and, and mandated treatment can help people avoid uh, recidivism, right? If you accept that, and that's the premise that much of our criminal laws are designed around in terms of what, how they're written, uh, you then disqualify folks who are in need of that treatment. This is you know, a much more modest proposal than creating a misdemeanor exposure. I, I think yours is better you know, a better solution than just giving more people probation. Mm -hmm. But disqualifying from probation just leads to these not these these awful outcomes from any perspective, right? The person who we agree, you know, is is found uh, the unconscious, 
and in possession of a good number of drugs, but they're you know found passed out. Right. That person uh, now, because they've previously had a lot of drugs, uh, is looking at okay, you'll go do four years the full time, and when you get out, you still have the same addiction, and you have no there's you you get out with no uh, nothing supervision. Yeah, you just you just we're just going to hold you for longer. So right. it's um it's uh an area where there should be it's like a it's like a I don't know what the term is like a vestige of the mm-hmm. the war on drugs is these probation and eligibility terms. They don't jump out as much as the sales priors, but they are pretty damaging. There is a bill in California to delete them, but the bill was put on like a standby in the last legislative session. Mm. So it'll be up again. So hopefully it gets off the uh, desk. Uh, we'll, we'll tweet out what the name of the bill is so you can write to your uh, local legislator uh, to encourage them to enact that bill to get rid of probation and eligibility. of some last thoughts as we as we finish up um well, what i wanted to hear from you and what i wanted to share too is i i guess what you what you learned from 2019 as a as a lawyer as a public defender um you know as an as an attorney as a practitioner um you know what you're carrying with you in 2020 i know avi you're transitioning from um, your research assignment where you've essentially been a help desk um, lawyer for other lawyers in the public defender's office while also working on um, bail um, bail reform and bail um, requests for individuals incarcerated in our county so I'm and then now you're transitioning to the to a trial team and then I have had the privilege of um, doing essentially two and a half trials in 2019 and and have that have evoked and provoked a lot of different thoughts about the practice. So I kind of wanted to have this little discussion between you and I about what we've learned in the past year or so, and then what we're kind of taking with us as we launch into 2020 as public defenders representing the people that we are honored to to serve. When I came in out of law school, you know, it was, and and even before then, it was about holistic uh, defense. So you you know, client centered defense was what's being taught and then you're seeing it kind of enacted over time uh, thinking about the client's immigration issues thinking about the client's housing issues thinking about what's uh, the client's family and how that plays into a larger question of how do we solve problems and so I've you know given that a lot of thought this is I just did year 10 you know I've just finished year 10 of being a public defender bail reform is about situating our clients in a larger kind of communal fabric and so, it, you know, the holistic defense, the client-centered, but somehow community-situated practice is the thing that I'm thinking a lot more about and figuring out how to implement when we come up with plans for our clients, where they're going to go, when we think about how we're going to help our clients get back on their feet, right? Separate from, you know, the dismissal of the case or a plea bargain or trial or anything, you know, just like what do we do to res- return these people, right, to to their their communities and and 
and give the like the warm handoff from this court system, you know, to to what's actually happening for the folks, so they're not isolated. So I, I talk about that a lot, but I've been kind of thinking about how to enact it. How do we actually get somebody out of a jail and into you know back to their home where they can safely return to court? How do we think about reemployment for folks? Um, and how do I change my practice so that I'm thinking about those questions I'm, and I'm at taking steps, even if it's going to employers and try to figure out how can we get this person back at their gig? You know, like it's just, you know, as opposed to so there's like the very like academic, like this is required in order to convict somebody of X crime. And because of these four court decisions, this hasn't been proven yet. I feel very good about where I'm at with those skills uh, just because I've been practicing that for a while. Uh, but I'm thinking much more about this model, you know, so it's like these, the community situating our clients in the community gives us a lot more power in terms of the advocacy, in terms of the positive outcomes we can generate, in terms of like the hope that we can build in our practice. So that's the thing I've been just thinking about. Didn't you go to a restaurant that you're one of your, the people you represented uh, worked for previously and talked to their owners or their staff to see if he could get his job back or if his job was waiting for him, if the court released him. Isn't oh, that yeah. something that you did? <laughs> yeah, I, w- I had all the kids. I, I picked up all the kids and I learned that one of my clients uh, had previously, so not before his arrest, but like you know, sometime ahead of that, had worked at a, a restaurant uh, that I go to a good amount. It's like a very family friendly, lovely restaurant. And so um, I had the kids and I was driving, I drove like by the restaurant, pulled up, you know, grabbed the kids out of the car. We went in. I looked around, you know, s- saw some people who were familiar, and then I talked to them about the circumstance. And I said, this person is currently in jail. They, they knew if they had a job, then they would be uh, eligible for various benefits uh, for reasons that are uh, not material to this conversation. But, like, having a job was, would be, like, extra beneficial for this person and asked if they could come back. And so they had to talk about it, and they had to figure out, know what to do my oldest kid was you know we're all together and my oldest kid uh when that guy said oh yeah i heard he's in jail my my oldest kid's like wait what who's in jail wait who's somebody's in jail hold on (laughs) i just like look all over the place but um you know they they rehired him and he was able to that was that was a really meaningful argument you know we're having these big fights about getting people out of jail yeah, it was connected community. Thank you for asking about that. that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that was a. Uh, it's hard for me to reflect on the year. I'm not as reflective as you are about you know about. I like, don't think about the calendar yeah. year necessarily either. But yeah. I was just it was a memory that popped into into my head. And when you mentioned kids, if you don't mind me sharing, oh, yeah. um, you know, I I pick up my son from school, and sometimes I have court appearances that I have to attend um, on the same days that I have to pick him up from school because of some minimum day. Um, and so I had the privilege of having my son, older son, come to court with me when I was appearing with one of the men that I represent who's accused of a homicide case on a plea calendar. And I brought my son to the courthouse and then into the courtroom. Uh, the deputy in the courtroom was kind enough to allow me to have my son sit at, sit at the, go past the bar and sit on the, you know, where the attorneys sit. And then, you know, I don't know that my son knew what I, what, my client was accused of and I didn't fill him in that wasn't necessary but I found it such so gratifying to have him see me sit with and talk to uh, a fellow human being who unfortunately was 
in a jail uniform and might have been shackled. But I'm hopeful that my son was able to see that and to appreciate as he gets older my capacity, willingness, love to sit with and attempt to humanize the people we represent. And I'm hopeful that his seeing that will have that type of quality flourish in, in him too, where he's able to sit with and, and learn from and, and communicate with uh, people from all walks of life, the people that are uh, privileged like like he is in terms of socioeconomic status and where he lives and things like that, but also those that are not so privileged and even people that have done bad things or allegedly done bad things. Um, so that was really, really special as I reflect back on 2019. Another thought that comes to mind for me is I've had the privilege of doing a couple of trials this year. Um, one was a trial of a man who was being alleged by the state um, as an a sexually violent predator, SVP, where the, the man had prior sexual assault convictions from early on in his life and had served several decades in prison and also in, in a state hospital. And the state was arguing and bringing a claim that he was too dangerous to release back in the community. He was a man in his 60s, and I had the privilege of representing him and trying to push back against the state and to argue that he didn't have a sexual disorder that put him at risk of reoffending, and instead that his crimes that he committed as a young person were the byproduct of significant childhood trauma, an underdeveloped and, adole and adolescent brain, um, and other life factors, and that he was not a risk to the community if he were to be released. Um, ultimately, we won the trial, and, and that man has since been released, but that's not the reason I tell this story. Um, what there, what I gained from that experience was something that I actually learned in therapy. Because um, I was going to therapy as I went to that, was I, as I was participating in that trial. I was struggling during that trial. I was not sleeping very well. I was staying up late, um, working on the case as best I could, trying to cover every angle. Um, and a lot of my staying up late was... Um, a product of, of significant anxiety and stress about the outcome. I was really stressed about the outcome. And I, as, I, as I was processing why I was stressed about the outcome, one layer of it was that I really loved and appreciated my, the man I was representing, and I wanted him to have a, another shot at life on the outside. That was definitely a, a huge part of what was um, leading to that feeling of stress and responsibility. But another layer of it was ego-based. It was based in, I want this result. I want the win to validate me uh, as a human being, to validate me as a public defender, and then to come back into my office and almost to hold it up and say, I won, um, and to get the acclaim and the, and the uh, praise and the job assignments that come along with that. Because we do operate, uh, this is not an indictment on this office, but we do operate in a um, system where winning comes with that praise and acclaim and those job assignments, whereas losing kind of falls on, uh, falls silently and people often suffer losses alone and without any acknowledgement or praise or recognition, even though it, that lot, that result had nothing to do with their effort. So I recognize that I was really, um, looking for that validation and that, uh, and I needed the outcome. I needed the win, um, to get it. 
And so when I was in therapy, I was talking to my therapist about, um, about this and the sleepless nights. And she had me do a breathing exercise and, and basically close my eyes and do this breathing and state out loud. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically saying, um, I will do the best, um, that I can with what's within my control. And I will be content with that. Uh, you know, and had me repeat something along those lines a few times over. Mm. And, this was before I delivered the closing argument for that man. And then when I walked in to do that closing argument, having done that breathing exercise and stating those kind of mantras out loud, I walked in there with a certain amount of freedom. Uh, I was feeling lighter than I had ever felt. The weight of the outcome wasn't on my shoulders anymore. And I was just going to do the best that I could. I was going to speak my truth to the judge in that case. I was going to lay it all on the line and tell my client's story. And then the result was out of, I was going to be content with the, um, with that effort. And the result was out of my hands. Uh, we delivered the closing argument, felt amazing. And then came back because it was a court trial, came back maybe two weeks later for the result. And what was really beautiful about it was that the man I was representing before I, we went to accept the, hear the result said to me, no matter what happens, you did the best you could. I'm grateful for the job that you did. And then I had, so I had it. Internally, I had told myself that, and then I'm now hearing it externally from the man that I'm representing whose life is on the line, and then we won the case, and what was beautiful about it is that it didn't move me. It moved me. I was proud. I was so gratified. I was so happy for the man. I was, there was a purity to my happiness because uh, I was for the man that I was representing. I was happy that, we, that he got a chance at life on the outside, but it wasn't about me at least I hope not. It wasn't about me coming back to the office and holding up the victory and needing that victory for validation as a person, as a public defender, or um, within my office. I knew the value of the work of the work that I had put in for this man, and was content with that, even if nobody else necessarily acknowledged it. So that was really powerful. No, that's like a mindset shift. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like a, and I really want that to be. And so then the the corollary to that story is that I did a follow-up trial with Kristen that I talked about earlier, a five-month double murder trial. And ultimately, after months and months of litigation, of grinding and battling and giving it all that we had on every issue um, for months for months and days on end, that client was convicted by a jury of all charges. And the experience that I um, felt was truly transformative. Um, I cried with the man that we represented and who was convicted as we sat and took his verdict. I, sh I held his hand as he was shaking um, um, as, as the verdict came down. I hugged him. We talked about how we had his back and we loved him and um, that we were there to the end of the line with him in terms of representing him. But then when I walked out of that courtroom, so having experienced the sadness and all those emotions, um, I walked out of the courtroom and previously, if, if I had gotten a guilty verdict, it would have literally dropped me to the floor like, and devastated me. And this was devastating. It was upsetting and disappointing and sad. But I felt so proud uh, of the work that we had done for this man and, and on behalf of on behalf of him and uh, as representatives of our profession. And so it didn't invalidate me, 
Um, I felt so proud and so grateful to do what we do. And it didn't move me in the same way that the victory didn't move me before the loss didn't move me. Um, and it, it, um, in the sense that it didn't um, invalidate me as a lawyer. In fact, in, I felt so proud of the work that we had done for him, me and uh, Kristen had done for him. And so now as I launch into 2020, I feel like I'm like calibrated and oriented. I'm now in another trial and I'm putting in work. I'm grinding for the man that I'm honored to represent. I'm covering as every corner and uh, that I can and doing every, um, being as detail oriented as I can and controlling everything doing everything that's within my control but i've let go of the weight of the outcome and it's a thing that i want to start to um, tell other people about that's why i'm telling it now on the pod and i also want it to be something that we promote in the public defender world because i think a lot of our lawyers are carrying a lot of weight that is really causing them to drown and suffer um, that they don't need to be carrying uh, because they are focused and the and the profession has focused them and society has focused them on the result it's a it's a cause that i want to take up so that we as public defenders that are doing this already heavy work aren't carrying any more weight than we need to yeah i mean i i listen to that thinking about where i'm you know in terms of going on a new assignment yeah and you know there is some you know you feel your shoulders go up to your ears you feel tension growing with all the stuff and i i share your I've, I've kind of on this like similar, I don't know if it's not same page, but similar chapter, you know, or whatever about the sorts of healthy practices or outlook and what you can control. I'm, I'm, I'm there, but even being there, right. Listening to you describe the two cases helps me kind of situate myself better than, you know, saying, okay, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, which I do say, uh, you know, a, a twig floating down a stream, mm-hmm. you know, like, but, but that's a, it's something we have to talk about, you know, in terms of in, in, in kind of the, the setting that you described being so illuminating, right? Uh, yeah. Is you have to unpack a lot of, the, of stuff, you know, why, what's, and th- you can be motivated to win the case. You can want to win the case. Some people draw on that, you know, a lot. You can be motivated by the craft, you know, in executing a strategy, but being really open about what's driving and trying to situate out yeah the the drivers that are going to be harmful or that you're going to have to pay more for you know on the on the back end is really important yeah it is and it's something that i i, I kind of continue want that i want to process for myself and i want to process with you as as you take on a, this new caseload i'm assuming of 15 20 25 however many human beings that you're going to be tasked with representing and as as we, you mentioned 10 years in the practice, Avi, it's going to be year, I'm finishing up year 12 for me. Um, as we elevate in this practice and accrue seniority, we generally tend to handle um, the more serious uh, cases uh, that are more challenging and that have um, more grave consequences. And it really is significant for us, you and I, um, but then also other aspiring and young public defenders to have the appropriate kind of framework and perspectives to healthily manage the um, inevitably challenging uh, job that we do where th- where this gig goes yeah you know, like what you're starting when you're signing on as a as a new public defender which I remember you know very well right you know, is you know I, I had a vision of all the things I wanted to do yeah right but there there is a difference when you're really in it you know in terms of what you need to draw on yeah uh, when you're in it the other thought 
that came from these experiences was this real deep gratitude for the work that we do. And it's almost to give us a bit of a pat on the back and acknowledgement for public defenders generally. I think we've talked about this before. It's one thing to represent the innocent um, because I, I think everyone gets um, gets on board with representing the innocent and not having innocent people falsely accused, falsely convicted, and falsely imprisoned. But often what we do as public defenders is, and I, this is not addressing any specific case, is representing people that have done bad things in some shape or form. They have done something around which the case is arranged. You know, some judgment, Correct. some past history, Correct. something in the current case that is uh, then used to build the whole case around. Right. Something that uh, subjects them to condemnation. Right. And so representing the man that I represented in that SVP trial, for example, or representing the man that was convicted of a double homicide. I'm not making any judgments on on the quality or the veracity of the conviction. I've just been really privileged or and I feel really grateful that we have the capacity and the willingness to sit with people from all walks of life, as I um, mentioned earlier, and also specifically to sit with people that have done bad things and to recognize their humanity, to shake their hands, to hug them, to talk to them, to tell their stories, to believe in them, to hope for their rehabilitation, redemption. It's something uniquely public defender. It's something that we um, as public defenders um, have a unique talent and capacity to do that many people in our community don't. And so um, I called it, um, I wrote a little piece called Walking with the Quote-Unquote Wretched. And that's what I feel like, um, I feel such gratitude that we get to do is that we get to walk with the people and sit with the people that many in our community would otherwise walk away from or stand up when that person sits down at their table. And so I just, I've learned that over this year. Um, It's been something that's been really orienting for me and it, it kind of buoys my public defender spirit. I love that word, that this is who we are. Like it's in our DNA, it's in our bones, as you talked about it before with prospective jurors in a trial, like in your bones, you know, how do you feel? Um, it's in our bones that we have this capacity and willingness to, to sit with and talk to the people we do. And it's it's a special privilege, and I'm really grateful for it. Me too. <laughs> All right. This has been a, a great year, Sajid. I love having these conversations with you, man. And uh, I hope that y'all uh, were able to uh, have a good year also and that your uh, next year is a, is a great one that you – uh, for fellow PDs and uh, defense folk uh, that you are able to draw on whatever you draw on sustainably uh, to take up this amazing cause that we get to be a part of. And uh, so I think we'll, we'll just catch you all later. Yep. All right. Peace out. Talk to you in 2020.